that caused you indescribable joy. A joy so amazing and exciting that you just had to tell everyone you met, known or unknown, the commoner on the street. For me and those who have experienced this, that joy comes at the birth of your firstborn. Not because the firstborn is best, but simply because it is a once-in-a-lifetime experience, something that you've never experienced before. And, and that's what I'm focusing on here. But I'm using the example of the firstborn child. You can't imagine what it's going to be like. You've seen babies before, but when it's your own, it just causes undescribable joy. For those who have not experienced this, I'm sure that you have at some time had first-time experiences of other things that simply surpassed any experience that you've had before and about which you wish to tell everyone and anyone. Having a child for the first time surpasses all other experiences. So we call it firstborn as a special designation simply because it's the first time you experience it. If your experience was like mine, you couldn't wait to tell everyone, I'm a father. You might even publish it in a local newspaper, like we did back in 1984. Or, as most do today, you might post about 120 po uh, pictures on FaceTime or Instagram of the child sucking his or her thumb. But that's joy. Surprising. Uncontainable. You want to tell everyone unexpected, totally different than what you thought. Words can't express that joy. That's why you share the pictures. You paint a picture with it. You put it on Facebook or Instagram, or you want to show pictures of the baby to those who are around you. That's the joy that John is talking about in his first letter when he writes, this is what we proclaim to you, what was from the beginning what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and our hands have touched concerning the word of life. And the life was revealed and we have seen and testify and announce to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we announce to you too, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Thus, we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. That is, so that you may be made whole. He wrote this letter to all the congregations in Asia Minor. Well, we're going to talk about this joy today. And we're going to talk about it through two amazing words that Jesus says in our gospel lesson for today. But I have a little aside first. Often, you know, I always mention words. And the Greek word for this, and the Greek word for that. Well, words are interesting, not just because you can go to the dictionary and find them. Dictionary, that you have a sort of an intellect about words and what they mean, right? A lexical meaning, a dictionary meaning. Take the word, for example, to deceive, right? We all know what deceive is. But there's another dimension to words that captures the culture and a deeper meaning to what the word is. It gives an image, a picture, if you will. I could say deceive, and we all know what that means, but I can also say pull the wool over your eyes. 
That means to deceive. But it comes from our history as colonies when the judges in a courtroom wore wigs and you pulled the wig over their eyes to deceive them. The image carries power and a deeper meaning of the word and what it means. Well, today we're going to look at two of these words and more of a deeper meaning. The first word is open minds. The second word is understanding when Jesus says it. We see how these are important in our everyday life, particularly for the disciples in this moment. Well, when Jesus says he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures, he's talking about understanding the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, he says. And the only way to understand the scripture is to know the scripture. Jesus wants his disciples to uncover and know what the scriptures say. So he leads them to the scriptures in a way that they've never been taught before. You know, when we were in Latin America, this reminds me, the Catholic Church there never wanted people to read the scriptures on their own. They, they told them they would get confused or they would go crazy, that only the learned should look at the Bible. They should only read it in the presence of a priest or some teacher of the church, because they could get it wrong and it could lead them astray as if the devil would creep in and take over an interpretation. Only those in power could interpret it. They considered the Bible a dangerous tool in the hands of the laity, the common people, can cause you to go crazy. Priests would tell parishioners to not read, only the church officials. They didn't want the minds of the people to be opened, perhaps, to understanding the scriptures in a way different taught by the church. Reading and understanding can be difficult at times. It can be confusing. So how does this opening the mind of Jesus is talking about and understanding take place so that there is joy like the disciples had? Well, let's revisit that upper room where Jesus makes himself present and see the transformation of the disciples, because the same thing happens to us. When we open the scene there in the upper room, the disciples spent a lot of time with Jesus. They heard him, ate with him, journeyed with him, spoke with him, saw him face to face, knew him intimately. How could they miss this and be totally confused and startled and afraid? We read that the disciples were really uncomfortable seeing Jesus. They were terrified, startled. They didn't know what to think. They were beside themselves. Yes, they had joy, but it was a scary type of joy. They were like, yeah, he's back, but what do we make of all this? They could only think of what they had known to be true about people when they die. They were uncomfortable because they didn't, uncomfortable, they couldn't relate this experience to anything else. They knew about ghosts, so anyone who died is probably a ghost. It's a natural conclusion. It's not so strange that we too may not understand what we read in Scripture. All of it can seem strange to us at times. We can't piece things together all the time. We can't make sense of it at times. When we read something that can only be understood from our knowledge of what happens in the world. We can't disassociate a, an experience we've never had. If we see something strange, out of place, it makes us feel uncomfortable. Things just don't fit. In other words, according to our human nature, we relate 
and comprehend things, and we see scripture and comprehend that based on what we've experienced before. Here's the problem for the disciples, though. The disciples never experienced Jesus resurrected, or anyone else for that matter. Now you say, well, there was that time Lazarus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a fundamental difference between Christ's resurrection and Lazarus. Lazarus was returned to life again, as he had life before, and he was brought back to life, and he died later. Christ is the first fruit. He's the firstborn from the dead, if you will. Not of a life you've seen before. He's not until now seen life. He's the resurrected life. Christ did not come back to life. He is what we will be on the final day, as we read in our epistle in 1 John. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him face to face. The resurrected Christ. He is the new creation. He is what we who die in him will be. That the disciples cannot recognize as possible. It's outside of their experience. They think he's a ghost because, well, they know he died, and the natural outcome of someone who has died is that they are dead, so conclusion, it must be a ghost. They know, secondly, that a ghost has no flesh and no blood and certainly cannot eat, but here Jesus blows them away. He invites, Jesus always invites, of course, to touch his hand and his feet and his side. Well, a ghost doesn't do that. Then he eats with them. Gosh, a ghost doesn't do that. Of course, he's, okay, he's not a ghost. He's, he's not anything like we've ever seen before. Would we react any differently, though? Like the disciples, we are born in sin and far from God. We do not understand spiritual things. That's what 2 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says. The natural man, the unbeliever, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him, and indeed he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The one who is spiritual, the one who is spiritual, discerns all things. Yet he himself is understood by no one, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to advise him? But we have the mind of Christ. The pieces don't fit together logically, even now at times in our faith, much less if we were side by side with the disciples in the upper room. Even though for us, Jesus' teaching and death and resurrection seem so obvious 2,000 years later, that we say, disciples, how can you not know what's going on? But it was not for them to accept. It was by the same faith and understanding that the disciples had, that we have. Perhaps the same questions, the same doubts, the same confusion as they did. But it's still by faith. Although the disciples were with Jesus, they didn't know him. Although they had seen him, they really didn't see him. Although they heard him, they really didn't understand. Although they ate with him, they really spent time with him. Although they could walk and follow him to the courtyard of the high priest, there they would abandon him. Something went wrong. As we know, Jesus knows all things, though. 
And so as he enters this upper room with the disciples in the gospel, Jesus knows that his disciples see, hear, and touch and don't understand. But here is where Jesus takes command, as Luke says, and our word open comes in. He then opened their minds. Now, interestingly enough, let's think back to Jesus' ministry. This is the same word and action Jesus uses when he miraculously opens the ears of the deaf, he opened the eyes of the blind, opened the mouths of the dumb. Without his word, nothing happens. Without his word, there is no hearing, no seeing, no speaking. His word creates eyes that see and ears that hear and tongues that confess for the first time. An unknown experience to those who can't speak, an unknown experience to those who can't see, an unknown experience to those who can't hear. His word creates it. And that is what Jesus is about here as he opens their minds. But the word open also has a picture, image behind it, like pull the wool over your eyes, like we've seen before. It comes from the context of the culture. It paints an incredible image that the text and the word just doesn't bring out, doesn't speak to us, but now it will. The imagery here is incredible. When Luke says he opened their minds, we might picture a door opening or that Jesus gave some type of insight or hint so that they could put it all together, sort of like clues. No, that's not what Luke means, and that's not what Jesus said. Luke's image is of something being cracked open so as to reveal what's hidden inside. And the word is specifically used of a womb that opens for the first time, giving birth. The image of the firstborn male the opening of the womb that was never opened before. Wow. Think of that for a moment. All the pieces that Scripture mentions this, Jesus is called the first fruits, the firstborn from the dead. He bursts forth as the firstborn from the tomb. That is to say, up until this point in the history of the world, the tomb has never been opened. It was permanently closed. But Christ is the firstborn from that which was previously barren and bereft of the possibility to give life. The tomb has never before been opened. And so this has never happened before. He's born out of nothing. Likewise with the disciples, their dull, limited minds, lack of understanding are suddenly, by Christ's words, their minds are open, they're being born for the first time. They didn't just put it together logically. It was Christ's words that breathed faith into them. They were born and reborn as the first fruits of the gospel, because understanding and faith comes only through the Holy Spirit of the resurrected Christ. By his words, the working of the Spirit, they are reborn as something that they were not before. They weren't saved. Now they are. They didn't have eternal life. Now they do. They are the firstborn of redemption. 
They were and are reborn of the Spirit of God as it flows through Jesus' mouth. And so, as he opened their minds, it all pieced together for them. It was the aha moment. I believe there were some gasping, there was some crying, some repenting, some uncontainable joy, just like when a child is born and comes into the world. That unforgettable experience that you've had. That's how John reports it in his epistle, so that your joy may be complete, so that you can see this baby of salvation for the first time along with the disciples. The baby from Bethlehem, born into the world, is now born into eternal life. So it is with us. Paul writes in Romans, and we've used this chapter over and over again, chapter 6, we are not baptized in Christ, we are baptized into Christ. That is, baptized into his death. And through that, together with Christ, in, with, and under Christ, we are resurrected. A life previously unknown is given to us in baptism. A life previously not ours to have is given to us being buried with Christ. Previously unattainable from a barren, lifeless tomb has been born again into something completely different, unlike it ever was before, that is, we are now a child of God. The joy is ours. Our minds are opened by the Holy Spirit in the same way as he claims us as his, and he takes us through death and resurrection. So as we hear God's word, his spirit gives birth to faith, which creates understanding in a way unimaginable before, gives us a new identity, a new person. That's why we are a new creation in Christ. We are born again unlike anything that's happened before. You are the sons and daughters of the firstborn in faith. You are born of the gospel, not by logic, not by intelligence, not by comprehension, not because you've put it through on checklists and, 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 and determined scientifically you are born because the Spirit has opened the womb and you are the firstborn in faith. What motivated the disciples to go and preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins and proclamation to salvation to all nations? Not a mandate. Do you think Jesus had to say, go and tell? <laughs> Pure joy. Earth-shattering ecstasy of finally witnessing in wonderment, beholding in beauty, gazing in glory at that which was now burst forth from the tomb and was now born in their minds as Christ burst forth from the tomb, which once concealed and held him. Being born in sin separates us from God as well. We, like the dumb, cannot speak without the Spirit of God. We, like the lame, cannot walk and follow Christ without the Spirit of God. We, like the demon-possessed, cannot be anything else but slaves to sin and death unless the Spirit sets us free through Christ's word in scripture. We, like the deaf, do not hear God's word aright. We don't seek it. We don't intelligently understand it. It's complicated. We 
have to be born again. But Jesus causes the deaf to hear, the dumb to speak, the the blind to see, and the lame to walk. This was the whole purpose of these miracles. Jesus transforms us as well and gives new life to you and me. This is the joy which John speaks of. This is the joy that he wants you to have like that first-time experience. Let it move you to tell everyone you know and don't know about your new life born in Christ. Post pictures of you living your new life, your joy. Tweet your joy from the mountaintops, that hope that lies within you. Amen. Let us confess our faith and joy together with all Christians everywhere.